Well, I have been at the same time surprised and encouraged as we've walked through Genesis together now for a long time, surprised and encouraged at how often the topic of abuse comes up in this very old book. I don't know about you, but I tend to fall for the myth of thinking that abuse is is a current issue, something people are talking about today, but something that wasn't really all that important in the past. But here we are looking at a book that by anyone's reckoning is at least 3,000 years old. I believe the earliest parts of Genesis are among the very first things that mankind ever wrote down in our history. And you don't have to get very far to see that the Lord really cares about abuse and especially about the abused. We saw early on a man named Lamech who taunted his wife with these horrible words and we got a peek at the heart of an abuser there. And then later on we learned about Hagar and we got to see the world through the eyes of somebody who is mistreated and abused and and see indeed how much God cared for her and his heart toward those of you that are in that situation. Uh, Later, we will come upon a case of a false accusation of abuse when someone with great power will falsely accuse a man of abuse in order to abuse him. And today, we look at a really unique story in which a woman is treated very terribly. And the story revolves less around her and more about how those in her life who are meant to protect her, how they respond. It's a story that guides us when we are in those ever-difficult situations where we are leading and someone we love and cares about comes to us and says, I need to tell you about something that happened to me. And I think if the last few years have taught us anything, they've taught us that we really don't know what to do in those situations. Some of us are in leadership, or maybe you're a father or a mother, or maybe you lead at work or in the church And I bet you're wondering to yourself, what would I do if someone that I led, if my daughter or if someone in my department at work or if someone who goes to my church came to me and said, I really need to tell you about something that happened to me. Would I know what to do in that situation? God has put authority structures in our lives, authorities in our lives, authority structures in the world in part to protect us. And for some of us, that means we have the blessing of people to protect us in our lives. We have police all around our city to protect us, and we thank God for that. Part of why they're there is to keep us safe. Uh, There's a police officer that lives around the corner and down the street from where I live. And he parks his police car, not in his garage, though he has a garage. He parks it out in the driveway for everybody to see. And I've never asked him why, but I think I know why he does it, because No one's going to break into a house on a street when there's a police car sitting in the driveway, are there? The presence of authority in our lives can keep us safe. That's why the Lord has put people like that in our lives. But what do you do when you're the person who's leading and someone comes to you in need of your help? That's an intimidating and difficult situation. And today, the Lord is going to speak from his word to help us in handling that. What would you do if you were the one who had to respond, who had to act wisely and rightly in a situation like that? Well, what we're going to see, I don't want to give away the whole story, but I do want to prepare you for it. A man named Jacob has a daughter named Dinah. She goes about in a city, and the prince of the land takes her, kidnaps her, and rapes her. He finds out about it, and both Jacob and his sons respond. And I don't want to give up too much this far, but I'll go ahead and tell you, they don't respond well. 
And this becomes a warning story about two pitfalls in the way we handle situations like this, two ways that we could go astray in our handling of a situation like that. So we can read a story like this and know that the same temptations are in our hearts. We need to be ready for those temptations to rise up if we're ever in the same situation. The backstory is that this man, Jacob, 20 years ago, had to leave his hometown, homeland in a very urgent situation in haste. But the Lord promised him on the way out, I will prosper you while you are gone. You're leaving with nothing but your staff. You're going to come back with much. And so he promised God in return, if you will do all that for me, then when I come back, I'm going to come to this very place named Bethel, and I'm going to offer you a tenth of all that you give to me. Well, 20 years have gone by. He has prospered greatly. He comes back to his homeland with great possessions. But instead of going to Bethel to offer that sacrifice, he settles in a land called Shechem. And he buys property in that land and, for all we can tell, intends to live there and dwell there for the rest of his life. So here, not keeping his promise to the Lord, he settles in the land and trouble begins to ensue. Let's read together Genesis chapter 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman. He spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now, Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with the livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take your daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell in it and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give to you. Ask for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled the sister Dinah. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he was delighted in Jacob's daughter. 
Now, he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let us dwell with them and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them for our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us and become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they'll dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords. And they came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword, and they took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and they plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? The, word, the words of the Lord. Through that difficult story, the Lord warns those of us in leadership against two tempting but wrong ways to respond to abuse. The short version of the story is that Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, is raped and mistreated. This puts Jacob and his sons in a very difficult situation because it is a powerful prince in the land who has done this and now he wants more. And both Jacob and his sons respond poorly in very different ways. You might say polarizingly different ways. Both of their responses show to us the temptations that are in our hearts when we're in difficult situations like this. Temptations we need to recognize and take captive to the law of God if we are going to respond rightly when something like that happens and we are the one in charge who has to make the decision and choose just what to do. So we're going to walk through the story here and I'll point out a few things the narrator is doing to show us a little bit. And then by the end of it, we'll have a good hold on just how Jacob responded wrongly and just how his sons responded wrongly. Then we'll apply that to a few real world situations today as such similar things go on today. Let's look at the story today first. So we see what Dinah does first here in verse 1 is she goes out to basically socialize with the ladies in the land, as one might do. She goes out to find friends or she goes out to see her friends. And while she is out, the prince of the land, the most powerful man in the land, sees her. And when he sees her, his intentions become evil. We see four verbs there in a row. He sees her and then he seizes her, or the same word for takes her. And then he lies with her, and then he humiliates her. 
And so that kind of stacking of verbs like that, when you read it in order like that, kind of along the way you realize, ooh, he did a bad thing. Ooh, that was really, ooh, that was very bad, right? Every time it escalates and you see a little bit more of how wrong it is what this man did to this woman. It's designed that way to stack up like that. And one rather interesting thing that the author has worked into here, he's got a bit of an echo with something he's written in the past. Typically in Genesis, well not typically, but sometimes, when someone does something very bad, the author will echo the verbs that were used of Eve when she took the forbidden fruit from the forbidden tree. You might remember she, she saw it and then she took it and then ate it and then gave some to her husband. Four verbs in a row like that. And we see that pattern again when Sarah, the wife of Abraham, takes her servant Hagar and gives her to her husband. The same verbs in a row like that. When you start to see those same words, there's an echo back here. And that's happening here as well. First, Shechem sees Dinah and desires her, and then he takes her. That word seized in our translation is the same as the word took. So this author is calling back to Eve's great sin in the garden as if to say this is a tragic and terrible thing that this man has done. He is showing us Poetically, what will be said later in verse 7, he had done an outrageous thing, something that must not be done, he does to her there. So things go on, and perhaps surprisingly, or maybe not if you're familiar with cases like this, after it's over, he falls in love with her. His soul is drawn to her, it's some really romantic language, and he speaks tenderly to her. Often men who do these sorts of things are confusing figures, and we're getting a little bit into his mind here to see that he's a confusing figure. He speaks tenderly to her, but then he goes to his father and says rather crassly, not the beautiful poem that Adam uttered out, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, I will call her woman, she was taken from it. No, he says, get me that kid for my wife. Right, very crassly, almost profaning her in the way that he talks about her and commands his father to go get me that kid that I want. The word literally is child that he calls her. Go get her for me. Well, Jacob hears about this and he's all alone and Shechem and Hamor are very powerful and so he kind of holds his peace. He didn't say anything until his sons come back in from the field. We begin to see some of his character come out. He's, he's feeling a little passive here. He's not doing very much. His sons are on the opposite end. They hear about it and they are indignant. So they stop what they're doing and they come in from the field and everybody has this kind of big meeting. I imagine it on a hilltop somewhere, but who knows what the scene was really like. There they are all together. Jacob, his sons, Hamor, Shechem, probably a big army or a retinue that came with them to show how powerful this prince is. And they talk things out. And Hamor says to them, my son desires your daughter. We will offer you whatever you would like. We'll even let you give your daughters to us. We'll give our daughters to you in marriage. We can intermarry together. Let's become one people in this land together. We are Hivites. You can become Hivites like us. You can trade freely in our land and join with us in our city. Now, if you know the large backstory in Genesis, you might know that Jacob can't do that, right? He has been commanded by God to keep his people separate from the peoples of the land. 
One day the day is going to come when God will take the land from all the peoples there and give it to him. But for that to come, his people must stay separate. They must be a separate family, and they cannot be absorbed into the many tribes of the land. This is why Esau shouldn't have married the ladies that he married. Why so many things that have been done shouldn't have been done. And at this point, Jacob knows, if I do that, I am giving up our identity as God's people, and we will become absorbed into another people. It would be something like as outrageous as if uh, the car dealership next to us wanted to expand and bring us into their organization. And we said, yeah, we'll become a car dealership instead of a church. We can't do it. Car dealerships are great, but we can't do that, right? Because we're a church. We're a separate entity. So Jacob looks at this and he knows or at least should know that he can't accept this offer. But there's a problem, several problems actually. Shechem and Hamor are very powerful, the prince and the king of the land. They've come out and they've shown great power in meeting them. And perhaps scarier than all of that, there's one person that has not been named in this gathering. Where is Dinah? They didn't bring her with them. Now later we'll find out where Dinah is, but for now we have to look at this through the eyes of Jacob and his sons who are simply there looking around going, wait a minute, they didn't bring her with them. Where is she? Do they have her? Is she captive? What are they doing to her? I surely don't trust these guys. Where is our daughter? Where is our sister? So the bad guys have the upper hand. They've got the girl, They've got all the power and they've got all the riches and they say, hey, we, we can offer peace to you. Come and be absorbed into our people. Attempting offer, but Jacob knows that he can't take it at the same time. Now that is a difficult situation to be in. They can say no, get destroyed, and the bad guys will take the girl and who knows what they will do to her. Or they can say yes and betray everything that God has promised to them. What are they going to do? Now that plot tension right there shows us something we need to keep in mind when it comes to leading in abuse situations. They are difficult, they are sticky, and very rarely will you just know what to do. Abusive people tend to be quite powerful, tend to be able to put leverage on you. They tend to be rather slippery and slithery, and it's very tough to know what is going on. And like Jacob and his sons, rarely do you know everything that's going on. You're having to work almost in the dark with only half of the knowledge that you need, working with very difficult people, often in a distressing situation. That's not easy. And if we kid ourselves thinking, well, me and my ideals are all I need to know how to handle this well, we're going to have another thing coming when we get in a situation like this. No, it's difficult to handle. Rarely is it this cut and dry. And so at this point, we have to back up and say, okay, what does the Bible teach us to do in difficult situations like that? What should Jacob have done? Well, the teaching of the Bible on things like this, it's twofold. Just leadership requires wisdom, is the first part, and wisdom comes from God, is the second part. So if you lead and you want to do it justly, rightly handle tough things like this and rightly handle firing whatever employee you need to fire, you want to lead justly, it's going to take wisdom to do it. And the only place you can get good, pure wisdom that isn't corrupt is from the Lord himself. The Lord writes in in the Proverbs, for instance, wisdom speaking herself, and she says, by me do kings reign and rulers decree what is just. 
how do, how do rulers, how do people in the state house and in the White House make just decrees? Through wisdom. That's the only way that you can do it. King Solomon was the wisest of all the kings that ever lived. And at one point, he gave a ruling that was so very just. Two women were arguing over which baby was theirs, and he figured it out, and everyone was amazed. And what it says is all, of people, all the people marveled because in him was the wisdom to do justice. Ideals are not enough to bring justice. Idealism is not enough to bring justice. A social justice class at your college is not enough to teach you justice. You need wisdom to do justice. Now, where would that wisdom come from? It comes from God alone. The book of James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. So, If you're saying to yourself right now, I know I'm not smart enough to handle a situation like that. What the Lord would call you to do is look to him and say, God, would you make me wise? Would you teach me wisdom? And when you do that, it says he doesn't find fault. He doesn't look down and say, goodness, 27 years and you still don't know how to handle that? That's not what he does. Goodness, 48 years on this earth and you don't know how to handle that? No, he doesn't find fault when we ask him for wisdom. He says, ah, you asked for my favorite thing to give. Here you go. And he gives it. So if you want to be ready to handle a situation like this better than Jacob and his sons did, what you need to do is look to God now for wisdom. He's been generous enough to write to us 66 books just full of wisdom. Man, just the book of Proverbs alone with all those little pithy two-liners that you can learn so much from just from reading one proverb. He, He just gave that. He didn't charge us for that. He said, here here you go. Read it all you want to. You look to him, learn wisdom, look to him asking wisdom, and he will make you wise enough over the years to handle even difficult situations like this. So we pause now and we say, okay, what should have happened? What should Jacob have done? Well, what he should have done is said, okay, fellas, uh, let us gather and talk for a second, which is normal in negotiations like that. Pull all the sons together and say, all right, all right, boys, we are, we are in a pickle here, aren't we? Let's look to the Lord for wisdom. We stop, we pray, we ask God for wisdom. Okay, Reuben, you got any ideas, right? An abundance of counselors, plans succeed. Reuben, what do you think? Benjamin, what do you think we should do? Right? Get all their opinions. Hey, you know, Eliezer, my grandfather's servant, is still around. Somebody go get him. And he, he was here when Abraham was through all kinds of difficult things. Let, let's ask and see what he has to say. And maybe one of them goes to, to the old servant who was there. And who knows if Eliezer's still alive at this point. We'll pretend he is, right? Word comes back from him. From the wise old man who says, here is what your grandfather Abraham did when five armies captured his cousin. And here's what you can do now. You can indeed fight and the Lord will give you victory. And he gets, they get counsel from him. They say, okay, the Lord, the Lord has promised that one day this land is going to be our descendants. These people cannot wipe us out. Let's stand in wisdom and just trust the Lord to protect us. And could you see if they had done something like that? This could be one of those great battle stories in the Bible, right? Where Jacob and his 11 sons somehow won a victory over 300 men, you know, by by the power of the Lord. Could have been one of those stories. But instead, they don't stop. They don't ask God for wisdom. They use deception instead. And Jacob himself is just passive and does nothing. So let's look at what they do instead. 
The brothers answer Hamor and Shechem. You see that in verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered them. That's not particularly unusual in that day. Uh, Both the brothers and the father were responsible for helping a a daughter to find a husband and negotiating that, making sure she was well taken care of. Not really all that strange, but it does make you ask, well, where is Jacob? They're offering anything we want in exchange. Where is Jacob in this? Uh, They talk a little more, and they answer deceitfully, saying, okay, only thing you need to do, you don't need to give us a great gift. All we're going to ask is that you honor our God as you join together with us and become one people by, by being circumcised. No big deal. Doesn't even hurt that much like they say. Like, nope, don't worry about it. You know, just do that. And then we'll be good. All right. The men receive that well and say, wow, we don't even have to give up all of our riches. Like, this is great. They go back to the city gate and they say, guys, look, if we do this, all of their stuff will be ours, right? We see the motive of Hamor and Shechem here is more than just the wife that Shechem wants. If they join with us, will not all their livestock be ours? Will not all of their cattle be ours? Will not all of their stuff be ours? This isn't just a merging into one people. This is kind of a we intend to take over them and take all of their stuff as we emerge. So these guys have even more evil in mind than they're letting on. And the men of the city agree to it. They say, yeah, sure, we'll go through the ritual. We'll, we'll do that. And then Dinah will be your wife. And then we'll join together with these people. So they go through with it. They're circumcised. Three days later, we see just what happens on verse 25. The third day, when the men are sore. Now, you may have always wondered, like, is it okay that I wonder about that every time they talk about adults getting circumcised? It's okay. There's the answer. Yeah, it does hurt. You will be sore afterward. When they're sore, three days later, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, they come through with the sword and... First, they kill all the men in the city. And then they kill Hamor and they kill Shechem and then they rescue Dinah from their house. Now up to that point, up to verse 26, it might be debatable as to whether they're justified in this. Right? Probably all of the men of the city were protecting their king and prince, Hamor and Shechem, so they had to get through all of them to get to Shechem's house. So maybe they had to, in battle, kill all these men. And certainly, Hamor and Shechem were not going to let Dinah go. They're bad men. And so, yeah, they probably had to kill them, too, in order to rescue their daughter. And then they rescue Dinah, and they go out. So maybe we could debate a little back and forth. Are they justified in this? Are they not justified in this? But once we get to verse 27, it becomes plain that they definitely are not. After they rescue her, they turn back to the city, they go back through it, they plunder the whole thing, take all the livestock, all the treasures out of the houses of these men, take their children, and take their wives. And why? Because he raped our daughter, right? So it's vengeance for what Shechem had done to Dinah. They take every wife in the city and every child in the city. So there's the point as a reader where you say, okay, they definitely did wrong. They definitely went too far. So there we see the two wrong ways that Jacob and his son have handled 
this situation, have responded to this situation. Jacob is passive and willing to accept this deal that would have been an end to his people and an end to the promises of God. And Simeon and Levi go on a rampage, destroying an entire city, kidnapping all their wives and all of their children in vengeance. So there are two wrong ways to respond. The last two verses show us their motives. Why did they do that? Why was Jacob so passive? And why did these guys go on a rampage? We see that in verses 30 and 31. Let's look at what Jacob says. He says to his sons, Levi and Simeon, and I think the first six words tell you all you need to know, you have brought trouble on me. All right. Later on, my numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I'll be destroyed, both I and my household. Why was he passive? Why was he willing to take this bad deal? He didn't want any trouble. So he tells his sons, y'all brought trouble on me, and I didn't want any trouble. Why was he willing to do that? Well, he says, I would have been destroyed and my household. He's, he's got a sense of self-preservation, right? I have to protect myself. I have to protect this institution of my family. And so I just really have my hands tied here. I can't really do anything. His sense of self-preservation and his desire to not have any trouble are what lead him to be passive in his response when he should have protected his daughter. On the other hand, why did his sons go on this rampage against this city? They answer with the last word in verse 31. Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Why did they do it? Vengeance. He treated our daughter, our sister, poorly. And so we are going to ransack the whole thing. And so, so there are the warnings. There are the temptations in every human heart to respond wrongly when we hear of abuse situations, when we hear that it has happened. There's a sense of self-preservation and not wanting trouble in all of us that makes us say, ah, it'd be better if we find a way to go along and get along and sweep this thing under the rug, and I don't want any trouble here. And at the same time, There's a sense of anger and vengeance in all of our hearts that says, oh, no, they did not. I am going to burn this whole thing down, right? That anger can lead to rampage. What the Lord wants from us here, he's pointing this out because if Jacob and his sons, if our father Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel have these temptations in their hearts and they fall to them, You better believe that we today in the 21st century have the same flaws in our hearts too. So we need to be ready to recognize that temptation toward passivity, it's in my heart. And if that situation comes my way and I'm not aware of it, it might well up in my own heart. That temptation toward rage that just leads to rampage, it's in my heart. And if I'm not ready to deal with it when the situation comes, it may erupt and I may do something that surprises myself. There's a warning the Lord would give us. Don't go down either of those roads. Know that they're both in your heart and instead look to the Lord for wisdom to do justice. Let's take that lesson then 
and apply it to some modern situations. Because things like this go on today, don't they? A, a Fortune 500 CEO does something terrible and we have to decide what to do, or the board of executives have to decide what to do. Things like this happen, and sometimes we are the ones who are called upon to act. So I'm, I'm going to take you through three different scenarios, one of which actually is happening, and the two of which I hope never happen to any of us. Things that very plausibly could happen here today. First, one you see on TV a lot, and I pray never comes here. Uh, you have seen, undoubtedly, on the news, on YouTube, you've read in the news of a, a string now of instances where a white police officer shoots and kills a black man. Surely you've seen these in the news, and it's happened many times. We're all trying to grapple with, okay, what do we do about that? What if, and God forbid it ever happens, but what if we all go to bed tonight we wake up in the morning, and on the news, we learn that right here on Meadow Avenue, a white police officer has shot and killed a black man. All right. Morgan, Paul, and Katie live there. They would have probably seen some of it happen. They probably would have called me, so we already know about it. Some of you couldn't sleep in the night, so you got up and you flicked on your phone, and you found out about it in the middle of the night, and the rest of you are waking up, and we're all finding out this is happening. And in the background of all the pictures on USA Today and on the New York Times and on the Wall Street Journal, in the background is a church building, and the red letters, Calvary Baptist Church, right in front of our church, it happens. Now we're in the spotlight, and we're going to figure out what to do. That's going to take wisdom to do justice in a situation like that, isn't it? And there's some wisdom we can rely on. Uh, one wise preacher before us, Martin Luther King Jr., he said the, the role of the church is not to be the master of the state or the slave of the state, but to be the conscience of the state. All right, the church's job then is not to tell the state what to do and expect it to obey us because they're in charge, not us. And neither are we the slave of the state either. No, our job is to speak prophetic truth just like your conscience does in your heart. When you're about to do something wrong, you know your heart's like, mm-mm, better not do that. A little tightness in your heart there. That's your conscience. We do the same thing by speaking truth to the state. They're about to do something wrong. We're the ones that rise up and say, no, 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 you shouldn't do that. Here's where the word of the Lord tells you not to do that. But like your conscience, which you have the power to say, stop it, I'm going to do it anyway, right? You can silence it when you want to and go do it. They have the power to silence us and not listen to us. They're more accountable to God because they had the church telling them not to do it, but they have the power to silence us when they want to just like you have the power to silence your own conscience, but are more accountable to God because it was there. That's the role that we play. And so we would then, because all the attention is on us, need to say some wise things. And when the facts aren't all in on the case, we'd have to say things like, let's be patient and wait for the facts. And when the facts do come in and we start to know what happens, we'd have to respond justly and wisely to that. Furthermore, all of us as citizens would have the responsibility of knowing what elected officers were handling different things. Are these judges elected? Is the police chief elected? Who is accountable to us? And in the next election cycle, do we need to vote for these people again or not based on whether they handled the situation justly? So we would have some responsibilities there if that were to happen outside our doorstep. But these two temptations would knock on our door too, wouldn't they? Wouldn't it be tempting to just say, boy, we don't, we don't want any trouble 
do we? We sure don't want it to be our church that's in the background of all those pictures. Let's see if we can call USA Today and maybe get a picture from another angle. And maybe they'll, maybe they'll get one down the other street instead of down this street and get ourselves out of the spotlight. Or maybe we need to just keep our eye on Twitter and figure out, okay, right now if we said this, people would be happy and then the situation changed. Right now it seems like people want us to say this and just kind of say what they want us to say, just like Jacob told Hamor and Shechem just what they wanted to hear because we don't want any trouble. Those temptations would come our way as well. We wouldn't want any trouble and we wouldn't want to preserve ourselves, perhaps at the cost of the justice that we owe to others. At the same time, when something like that happens, and maybe you've felt this in your heart, there is sometimes a righteous anger when injustice has happened that can then morph into a rage that just wants to burn the whole thing down. This is why peaceful protests sometimes turn into shattering shop windows and starting fires. Because the rampage of Simeon and Levi lives in all of us. And when we see injustice, sometimes we just want to burn it down. This is why hashtags like all cops are bad and defund the police exist. Because there is a rage in us when we see injustice. It just says, burn the whole thing down. The whole police department's corrupt. Let's just defund the whole thing, right? That is the rage of Simeon and Levi living on into the 21st century, right? Just burn it all down. So we would have to recognize both of those temptations are upon us. To do nothing out of self-preservation or just try to make people happy or to, in anger, just go on a rampage and burn down whatever we can burn down. What's the right way? Look to the Lord for the wisdom to lead justly when we're called upon it. Let's move to a second situation. Let's say, and I pray this never happens to any of you either, but I know it will. Let's say you're a dad and your daughter comes to you, or you're the boss in your department and one of your employees comes to you, or you're teaching a Sunday school class and one of the children comes to you and they're very nervous and they shake a little bit and they say, I need to tell you something. And you sit down and say, well, what do you need to tell me? And they, their face gets a little red from being nervous and, they, and your daughter says, you remember when I went on that date six months ago with that guy and then I never went out with him again and you were confused? Let me tell you what really happened. What are you, you going to do when you hear that news? Both those temptations are going to be there in your heart. Right? Temptation to say, okay, we don't, we don't want any trouble here, so let's just try to keep this thing quiet, keep the situation contained. This thing could blow up and ruin our family and ruin his family. and all kinds of, you, could, you could lose your college admission and all kinds of bad things could happen. We don't want any trouble here, so let's just try to keep this thing quiet. Or, I know my heart, if one of my daughters says that to me, there's a just a wee bit of rage that's going to come up in this man's heart, isn't there? Yeah. And so there's a temptation toward, oh, he did not, and just go on a rampage, burn the whole thing down because of what somebody did to your daughter or did to one of your Sunday school students or did to one of your employees, right? Both temptations will be there. and We've got to recognize that and look to the Lord for wisdom. The fear that comes in our heart as a situation like that is probably going to lead you to just want to freeze, right? You never expected to be in a situation like that. There's a real bodily, almost a nervous system reaction that just says, I don't know what to do. I'm not going to do anything, right? Just freeze. 
and I recognize that's going to be there, we should not preserve ourselves and pursue justice in a situation like that. There's a part of you that might rise up and just figure out, all right, who can I sue? Like, find me a lawyer and somebody is going down, somebody's getting fired over this, right? Just go after who you can and burn down whatever you can burn down. Now, the right thing to do, look to the Lord for wisdom. Pray that he would give you wisdom and search it in his word and with many counselors to know just what to do. All right, one last situation, and this one really is happening. It actually already has happened, and it's just about over with. Uh, You guys know that we're part of a, a convention of churches called the Southern Baptist Convention, right? And we, uh, they don't have any authority over us. They don't, they don't tell us what to do. Uh, but we do give a good, I think, tenth of our budget to them every year. And then once a year, me and whoever else wants to go flies out to wherever the convention is being held. And we make votes about how all that money is going to be used to fund our seminaries and send missionaries overseas. And the seminary that trained me was funded by gifts that we send from our church. And you guys were sending at the time there. Well, we do all of that every year, and then we commission an executive committee to carry all of that out, all right? So we'll vote on a budget, we'll do all that stuff. Then we all fly home, and we're like, all right, you guys take care of this. And these guys are holding, you know, very high positions, doing really important work, and they are executives, much like corporate executives. Uh, A few years, actually several years ago, uh, some women who are parts of Southern Baptist churches started going to this executive committee because it's their job to handle whatever comes up through the year and saying things like, hey, I need to tell you what my youth pastor did to me 10 years ago because he's pastor at a church over there now and they don't know that. Several coming at the same time saying things like this. So now that committee is in a difficult situation. What do we do? And since then, well, they handled it poorly. We looked back and we said, we think something's going wrong here. We're going to commission an investigation, figure out what these guys did. They investigated. It turned out about a half a dozen guys really did handle it very poorly. And as you read through that report, I've read through it twice now, one of the constant themes that came up was in the emails back and forth between these guys. There was a sense of, if we do anything about this, we're opening ourselves up to liability and the whole convention could fold and collapse. So we need to keep this thing contained out of, really, a spirit of self-preservation. The same self-preservation that Jacob had, the same passivity that Jacob had, led a lot of these men to do nothing when they really needed to do something. This allowed wicked men to keep pastoring churches all around our denomination, allowed terrible things to happen. When that news broke out, you better believe we were pretty mad about it. And so the opposite temptation, the Simeon and Levi way of handling things, suddenly became on everyone's heart. Boy, many of us just wanted to burn the whole thing down. So many people immediately threatening to leave the whole convention, try to sue the whole thing, bring the whole thing down. Why? Because we saw something wrong happen. It doesn't matter there was only a few guys that did it. I want to burn the whole thing down, right? There is both the passivity of Jacob showing its face in our convention And the rage of Simeon and Levi showing itself in the way many of us responded. What's the right thing to do? The right thing to do is look to the Lord for wisdom. Look to his word for guidance and for wisdom. And thank God, as I was there in California, we figured out how to respond. It really does look like they are trying their best to do that now in response. So I can give you a good word from the convention. They are responding quite well to it, thankfully. The key is we can't fall to Jacob's passivity. We cannot fall to Simeon and Levi's rage. No, we must instead look to the Lord for wisdom. So that's a lesson we gain today. If you're ever in the situation, know those two temptations in your heart. 
look to God for wisdom. Let me close by asking you this. What do you think that a story like this in the Bible says about Jesus? Have you ever read a story like that and wondered, Lord, why did you put that in your word? Like, what does this tell me about you that I don't understand, that you would make sure a whole chapter of Genesis is devoted to this story? Well, I can tell you one thing that it tells us about our Lord. He cares about just leadership. He wants people in power and authority to use that in the fear of God justly to protect and to bless the people that follow them. The Lord cares about just leadership. Furthermore, he wants us to see how badly it can go when we don't look to him for the wisdom to do justice. So he wants us to look at that and see that only in Jesus Christ is the wisdom to do justice. Some of you I know after the last few years in the world are crying out for justice. So many people want social justice now. And what the Lord would have us see on the pages of his scripture is that there is only one source for justice, and it's Jesus Christ himself. Only he will come back and rule, as it says, with a delight in the fear of the Lord, with the spirit of knowledge and power, the spirit of wisdom and might, the spirit of justice. Only he will come and lead us in flourishing justice. So if you want justice, I want you to know it's him that you want. And part of coming to Jesus is recognizing that his ways are, are good. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. This is his way of saying all those ways to live you are learning out there are wearing you out. My yoke, it's easy, he says, because my ways are good. Leaders, his ways are better than what you're being taught anywhere else. Those of you who long for justice and the people above you long for Jesus to come back, what you are longing for when you want it, you want him. So good news, one day he's coming. And he will lead this world in justice. Until then, anyone willing can return to him, receive forgiveness for their sins, and sit at his feet to learn the wisdom of just leadership. But here's the warning. You're not going to find it anywhere else, only at the feet of Jesus. So if you want justice, you want forgiveness, you want a person, you want Jesus Christ. So my call to you, is to come to him, come to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Let's ask the Lord to give us wisdom.